Thank you for joining the Women in Archaeology podcast. This is Kirsten Lopez. We are here at GBAC, otherwise known as the Great Basin Anthropological Conference, here in Salt Lake City, Utah, for 2018. I have with me a group of fabulous ladies, um, and we are going to discuss some of the things that we have seen uh, so far this conference. It is not quite over yet. We still have half a day tomorrow on Saturday. And so towards the end, we'll see if there's anything that we're looking forward to or sad that we will miss. So we're going to start with introductions. Many of you who have listened to this podcast before, my name is Kirsten Lopez. And to those of you who don't, I actually have been working and did present on uh, sourcing basketry in the northern Great Basin using strontium isotopes, and that's about as much as you need to know at Oregon State University. So next we have Brianna Kendrick. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brianna. I'm an undergraduate at the University of Oregon. Uh, I'm a senior, so I get to graduate this uh, spring. Super excited. Um, I'm a student in anthropology and geography, kind of focusing on the geography aspect, but how we can apply that to archaeology. So yeah, it's super cool. Hi, my name is Jordan Pratt. I am a PhD student at Texas A&M University with the Center for the Study for the First Americans, and I study Western STEM tradition occupations um, in the Hermit Basin in Eastern Oregon. Hello, I'm Caitlin McDonough, and I'm also a PhD student at Texas A&M University, and I am doing archaeological research at the Conley Cave site. And I'm also interested in the Western STEM tradition, as well as copyright analysis. Hi, I'm Taryn Johnson. I'm also a PhD student at Texas A&M University <laughs> in the Bioarchaeology and Genomics, or Big Lab. I study ancient DNA and use metabarcoding techniques to try to reconstruct some paleo diets from coprolites. Keeping with the theme here, I'm Caitlin Doherty, also with the Center for the Study of the First Americans at Texas A&M University. I'm particularly interested in lithic raw material sourcing in the Great Basin, uh, with particular attention to the way that these patterns may have changed between the terminal Pleistocene and the early Archaic. Happy to be here. Sorry, I swallowed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't breathe your beer. <laughs> Lesson one for the evening. Awesome. Well, thank you again for all being here and volunteering your time away from Hammerstone. Which is <laughs> the greatest archaeology jam band of all time. This is a huge loss. <laughs> exactly. Well, we got to see their opening and That's some... Excellent dancing. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Very impressive. The rugs that were cut with some of the senior archaeologists are always worthy of watching. They will never recover. Yes. Oh, but hopefully they we're talking about the rods, not the archaeologists. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just give the archaeologists a week. They'll be fine. They're more spry than I anticipated. <laughs> right? Seriously. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Oh, I look at them, I think, how are you so awake and jumpy? I just <laughs> I to missed to my body hurts. <laughs> They're more spry than I yeah. <laughs> For sure. So, yeah, it's a reward that you get after being in archaeology for, like, 50 years. It's all the squats. Is that how yeah. it works? So if I stay in this business long enough, my body will stop hurting? Uh, or maybe it will so. just constantly like hurt you, so much. And then you just used to it. Used to it. <laughs> my tolerance will increase. So yes. <laughs> get some oxy, go my hands, you'll be fine. Yeah. I might have health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Also life goals. <laughs> Please. Oh, exactly. Just yeah. give me benefits. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there, team. <laughs> so as students, 
Um, what are some of the best things that you've seen so far from the Great Basin Conference this year? Well, I think as students, I think most of the stuff that I saw was from students. So kind of seeing, you know, as an undergraduate, seeing the, the uh, PhD and master's students and being like, oh, well, one day I'll be there. And I'm super close and just, you know, getting excited as to what I'm going to be at soon. Yes. That was really cool. But the research that you're doing, though, that's that's pretty up there. <laughs> I it's, mean, it's Pam, on par. Pam thought that I, Pam apparently has been thought that I was a master's student for years. She's like, oh, I just thought you were like visiting home or something like that. And I'm like, no, I'm still an undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> I think the coolest thing is as a relative newcomer to archaeology, um, just hearing all of the awesome research that's going on and seeing the potential for a lot of collaborations and thinking, oh my gosh, Gina could go there, or you could inform this study, or we could just join Taryn, in. Karen, we've been telling you this for years. <laughs> I'm trying to bring your dissertation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously, when they were taking a class, they put, like, every day after class, they'd come and say, hey, we planned your dissertation. We planned <laughs> several dissertations. And I'd be like, I can only do one dissertation, so I'll put the rest on the back burner for my future career. That's not forward thinking. <laughs> yes. I will say, though, I mean, that is one of the things that I really appreciate about the GBACs in general, is mm-hmm. there's it's one of those things where clearly people know each other and they've worked with each other for a really long time, but there's also, I don't know, just kind of a sense of camaraderie where people who've never been to the conference before can come and they can mm-hmm. see papers by people that they've read. And then more importantly, they can see um, papers and posters by the students of those people. And I think mm-hmm. that that's one of the really fun things about this conference. And one of the things that they've been trying to highlight in this particular conference is where the discipline's going and how we mm-hmm. can mentor people in a way to help them get there. So Absolutely. I think that that's something that's really yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. I think I could speak to that too, as um, this is my first GBAC myself. It has been an excellent experience for me, at least, to finally put some faces to names, um, like you were saying, Jordan, and seeing and meeting these people for the first time mm-hmm. and seeing forthcoming research and, and see the way that these really eminent scholars are trying to direct the field and the work that their students, too, are completing. I was particularly impressed as this conference is titled Arrow of Time, um, right? Not Arrow in Time. I keep making it. Arrow, yeah, arrow, oh, arrow of Time. As it shows as up as on my pipe glass. <laughs> I mean, there are arrows in time, but that's not the point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, as I learned, because we even, I think one of us had the conversation, I was like, Arrow in Time sounds so much better to me, but I was just mistaken. I that's didn't understand the meaning of anything. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I did think that the, the plenary session was really interesting um, in the way that those researchers were explaining the, the direction that they'd like to see the field go in, particularly with their interest in the implementation of, of more theory in Great Basin archaeological research. I was just going to say, I think it's funny because, I mean, that is one thing that at least a lot of us have been talking about in our grad courses is just theory and how to better incorporate it into what we're doing. And I think a lot of the times the Great Basin actually leads the field of archaeology in some ways in certain types of theory. Um, and now maybe perhaps we're trying to figure out how to incorporate different types of theory. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think that was one of the cool thing about the things about the plenary session was just that they invited people who maybe didn't necessarily always specialize in Great Basin archaeology um, kind of to open up the dialogue about where we could go and what we could be doing. Yeah, a good example of that that I can think of is Joe McDonald's um, discussion of mobility and territoriality, understanding stylistic diversity in Great Basin 
rock art, and she actually came from Australia. Oh. She works in the yeah. Western Desert yeah. in Australia. And oh. Interesting talk. That was awesome. That Yeah, that was really neat uh, to look at sort of similarities and differences, and her work really explores relative dating of uh, rock art and also interpretation of the art itself and some of the parallels between Western Desert and Great Basin rock art, which is like, it's literally on the other side of the world. So it's... But it's their rock art is so cool. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It is really neat. And that's yeah. where it's, it's neat to see someone from outside kind of come in and contribute a new perspective and way of thinking about the rock art in a, from a different theoretical bent than we would normally be used to hearing in the Great Basin. I feel like for a long time, there was a lot, it's led um, archaeology, uh, or American archaeology at least, in a lot of the science aspect and a lot of really developing the ideas in processualism and as post-processualism kind of came alive in other parts of the world I don't think it ever really took foot here that I can think of um, and you guys can totally correct me on that um, and so it kind of skipped over in some ways um, which you know for better or worse and um, depending on where you are theoretically and it's neat to see that processual plus I think is what it's commonly referred yeah. to now, is integrating a little bit more of the interpretive angle of what had been associated with the post-processualist strain of theory um, and trying to lessen the divide theoretically between post-processual and processual, because that was really staunch and for a lot of people, I think still is. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's not really answering your question, but this reminded me of one of the papers by Brian Hockett, where he was kind of critiquing some of mm -hmm. the theoretical models and approaches that have been used for a long time mm -hmm. in archaeology. And I don't know, I just thought it was interesting to see those kind of critiques and relating to what Jordan was saying, even though he disagrees with some of the methods that other people are using or thinks that they could be improved or whatever, it's still a very positive environment where people are just talking about how we can integrate all these things together and that was kind of cool. I really appreciated his his commentary on kind of the theoretical perspectives that we have been using for so long in the Great Basin and future directions that we could perhaps go in in order to to enhance the interpretive power of our data. Yeah. I think uh, I, I thought that was was really well put. I thought it was interesting too because I mean to a certain extent he critiqued human behavioral ecology and optimal foraging which in many ways is very valid. But mm -hmm. I think what was interesting, too, is like the rest of the plenary session, you had human behavioral ecologists yes, and optimal exactly, foragers yeah. who were coming up and they were presenting data that is at least addressed in a different way than it used to be. And I think that that was one of the really cool things to me about that session was just the idea that there are so many people who are incorporating new um New ethnographic data, I think. And a lot of it is directed um, by the birds in Australia and by other individuals all over the world. But just the idea that, like, even though we've been using these theories for so long in Great Basin archaeology, that doesn't mean that they're, like, completely static. Like, there are ways that these same ideas can be rejuvenated and kind of expanded to incorporate new ideas, new knowledge, and just, I don't know. Yeah, but... That's also just the way that a lot of theories go in general, because I'm going <clears> to <throat> pull a bit from Byron. Did you think of theories of how humans spread across the world? It's you start off with 
<clears throat> old models and they develop and progress as you go further in the discipline. So it's really cool seeing how some of these older theories that might have been used in early archaeology have been changing and there's still elements of them present, but they're adapting and they're shifting mm -hmm. to kind of reflect the larger body of data we have now and the new thoughts. So it's really cool kind of seeing like there were problems with some of these early theories, but they're shifting in a way that is much more inclusive of what we know now. Exactly. It's like refining rather than rejecting. Yeah. And yeah. I really, I really like that. Cause they're definitely, even though there, there were problems, there are definitely serious valid points made. And it's hard. I think because there was a tendency whenever a new theory came up to be like, the old one is no good. Now we're rejecting this. And it's like the, the hypothesis, you know, we're rejecting the old, bringing in the new and sort of realizing that that doesn't necessarily have to happen. Like you can still have old theory integrate new theories and sort of create a really awesome, like Frankenstein out of it all. So mm -hmm. um, before we get too far, um, I wanted to also stop and uh, we have a new guest arrived so would you like I'm to sorry that's all right so um basically we did an introduction earlier so you're just your name briefly where you are what you're doing um and we'll continue my name is Michaela Rourke and I'm currently uh completing my master's at Utah State University and I'm studying really far northern Great Basin ceramics Loved your presentation, by the way. Thanks. It was, yeah, it was really so good. great. Yeah, my field school and my undergrad, they're both uh, pottery people. And so I was like, I, I, I have a home. soft spot for any ceramicist. Totally. I, was a, I was a pottery person in undergrad, too. So I was, I, that was the first time in like, a long time no. that I've to listen to stuff like that. So. It dissolved. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really crappy pottery. Yeah, when you told me about that, like oh, the other day, I just <laughs> broke my heart. Uh, it, it was a little rough. Yeah. We used to refer to pottery like that as crudware. It, that, oh my that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just cool crudware because it's the only crudware there. Yes, no, exactly. Can you please write a paper where crudware is in the title? I, yes. If my advisor will allow it, I'll make it happen. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think Travis is going to allow it. Probably not. Uh, yeah. 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 Something definitely to know, it's not just the great, the far north Great Basin. It is the only ceramics, really, in the state of Oregon that I can think of that I've well, seen. Well, I mean, yes, but Scott's found ceramics at quite a few sites, just not in large three. numbers. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm <laughs> only studying, three? Yeah, I thought well, we had more it's from all the other Shoshone sites. No, they're all uh, in Idaho. Uh, oh. Yeah, so in Skull Oregon, Creek it's <laughs> Lost Dune, or yeah, Lost, I should know this Skull Creek Dunes, and Catlow Caves. So oh, Skull Creek okay. Dunes, I'm working on one of the localities right now, and we're getting the other ones excavated, which I hope to incorporate oh, into awesome. my thesis if it happens yeah. within the next couple of months. And for, then I'm also studying the Catlacaeus pottery. For so, some reason, yeah. I thought he had ceramics from other sites, but I guess that's all of his other, like, Harney Basin, Shoshone. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even the best of conference is... doesn't actually incorporate ceramics. Learning, <laughs> learning all the stuff about Great Basin archaeology that I had no idea about. I know! It's the best. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much happening here. <laughs> oh, there's so much happening. I think that's another kind of topic, like, or theme of this year's GVAC is not only, like, thinking of new ways we can look at and process our data and interpret it, but also new methods to see things that we mm -hmm. couldn't even see before. Yeah, mm -hmm. Like sure. Nicole yeah. Herzog's talk about starches and incorporating DNA awesome. more and just all these new methods that we have. Yes. Oh, and you're sourcing basketry. And, and yeah, using yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm so excited. Totally, that's a perfect example, yeah. 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 
Well, I haven't sourced any yet, so we'll see. But, you know, we're in the process of it. But you have an idea for a way to do it, though. Yeah, Yeah. and you're trying, which I think is, I mean, that's science in a nutshell. If you don't try. Just throwing yourself out there. there. Well, getting the base data there, too, is not only going to help your research, it's going to help other people in the future be able to do them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's when it becomes well. apparent. Like, even if people have preliminary studies, it's not just about, oh, can I answer this question now? It's can I lay the framework to answer this question in the future? Can I lay mm. the framework so that future archaeologists can come back and say, okay, they told us how we can go about doing it. How can we build upon that? Yeah. And I think that's another theme of this conference, and maybe just Great Basin archaeology in general, at least in the northern Great Basin, is just there's so many sites that have been excavated and so much knowledge that's come out of those sites, but that doesn't mean that you can't go back and try to find more information. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm biased because I'm going back to a site that was excavated by people in the past, and they did a great job of analyzing and excavating that data, but that doesn't mean there isn't more to do. And I I think that that's one of those things that's exciting for people that are trying to find projects, perhaps. Like, I don't know, you don't have to completely recreate the wheel to still do something that's innovative and important for the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just being able to build on it is mm-hmm. super cool. And that always the thing, is the thing that they say. They say, oh, we're going to leave part of this site for the future generation, and we're getting to the point where that's that's us. Yeah, and we yeah. Have to look at this yeah. now. Yeah, it's kind of trippy. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah, and I mean, even from, I'm not that old, and the amount of leaps and bounds we've made in the things that we can do and the methods that we've had since I started my undergrad is insane. Yeah, yeah. that's true. When I took my first genetics class, it was in, I, oh, it must have been, I don't know, 2008 maybe. Oh, wow. Uh, and then when I took the next one, it was when I started my PhD program in the fall of 2017, and the methods had completely changed. And all of a sudden, we're able to extract ancient DNA um, obvious, with obvious ap- applications in archaeology. And that was you know, mm-hmm. a pipe dream when yeah. I had taken my first genetics class. And so it was really cool to see how far that technology specifically had come and, and the relevance that it has had. Um, an incredible importance to the interpretation of archaeological questions, I think. And it's only been 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's only been 10 years, but I mean, the, the, the innovations have been revolutionary. Yeah. And now Taryn has 20 million dissertations. Yeah. yeah. And, and, not, and now Taryn has her entire career. Yeah. Like, and so. The fun thing about it is thinking, I'm only 24, and yet my field, like the golden age of my field, is younger than me. Mm-hmm. And that it's is okay, so Taryn. bizarre, we'll but really exciting. Uh-huh. But it's, such a, it's so important to have the grad students who are able to bring in those undergrads, because that's yeah. what's been really beneficial to me as an undergrad, is just, you know, being welcomed into the community mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. you know, an undergrad, and, yeah, you know, you won't fit, be in, a, like, a master's program for a couple of years, but when you are, we're ready for you. Oh, yeah. So yeah. just having that, you know, camaraderie is so important. So we are going to take a quick break, um, and we will get back to discussing a little bit more on the topics of uh, the Great Basin Conference and some more of the favorite things that we've seen. So we'll be right back. During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We have been discussing many different types of topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. And it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. 
Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for continuing to stay with us. Um, We actually have one addition for this next segment. So, Nicole Herzog, if I get that correct? You did. Fabulous. (laughs) All right, so we did introductions earlier. If you just want to say who you're with and what you're working on briefly, and we'll continue on with the discussion of the conference. Oh, wow, who I'm with. (laughs) (laughs) So I work at Boise State University and I do star screen analysis and I'm interested in um, women's work and tubers and so that's what I do and that's where I am. Perfect. That's great. Awesome. Thanks. So we are, um, we just got done reviewing a little bit about sort of the themes of the conference. Um, and basically the big question is what are some of the best things that you've seen today, papers wise? Um, and, um, we mentioned earlier a couple of the plenary session pieces. So, uh, does anyone else have something in particular that they saw that we haven't discussed yet? I mean, okay. I couldn't be there the whole time cause I was running a different session, but I did get to see the tail end of your session about women in Great Basin archaeology, and that was something that, at least for me, it was just really important to just be able to see even part of that session, Mm -hmm. and I think probably I can speak for all of us just because it's so amazing to see the women who came before us and just recognize what they've done for us and for the discipline and also different ways that the mentors that we have today can uh, can and are helping us accomplish things that we want to do now and that we can help mentor people to do in the future. So I think for me, that was like one of the most important things. I'm sad that I can be there for the whole time. Yes, Bye. that was, of course, I'm a bit biased. Um, <laughs> but I, I, that symposium, I jumped in a little bit on, on what the symposium that you were putting on. Um, for some of those talks because they were really important. I'm like, of course, it's always jumping back and forth. Um, But it was neat to see the women in Great Basin Archaeology, actually. So um, the last recap that I did was the Northwest um, Archaeology Conference, and they had almost an identical, like, Mm -hmm. women in Northwest Archaeology. And it was not just tribute, but also just talking about issues, um, as well as the work uh, contributions and then the, the women uh, that have come before and steps to kind of improve on. And that was really neat. And it was really cool to see, like, in the same year, mm-hmm. this push again. And I was a little saddened by the size of the room that that was stuck yeah. in yeah. because it was standing room yeah. only the entire yeah. time. Was that at NWAC or? No, no that, was yeah. that was That one was standing room. Yeah, yeah. I, I walked by because I was in your session for most of the time, but I like I walked by and it was, you know, packed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. but that's also really heartwarming thinking of like, here's here's a conference uh, session all about the strong women in Great Basin Archaeology and it was a clear indication of people wanted to hear them People wanted to see what was going on, and it was just like, I was so happy that it was standing room only, because, mm-hmm. yeah. yay, people, yeah. shown interest. Exactly. Okay. One of the um, the best things I saw in there was Charlotte Beck's discussion about her, like, yeah. trials and tribulations through her career, sort of her winding path, because that's one of those things that was so encouraging to be like, it's not, you know, we don't have to climb this ladder necessarily, um, and it was really neat to see how things have changed, how things have gotten better. There's obviously still things to improve, but it's, it was a really fun talk and she's hilarious, by the way. I was like, 
She's the most adorable person I've ever seen. Yeah. I, I had no idea she was so adorable. I know. Yeah. One of my favorite things was watching her dance dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just talking to her about her research. Like, I just want to be her best friend. Like, I want to hang out with her all the time. Her talk was one of the highlights of the conference for yeah. me thus far. I really, yeah. really got a lot out of it. Especially that. the ending of it. Yeah. What was special about the ending? Um, Fuck the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Because she was talking about how when she was... Um, Studying, like working at Hamilton mm-hmm. um, about getting sexually harassed and ending it with just a like just speak up about it and that's super relevant in our day to day life today where it's like you know what this is unacceptable and everybody has the right to be heard and like you are valid speak up about it. Everybody at that point got up and started clapping for her, and I wonder if she was truly done, because she ended her presentation at that point, because everybody was already giving her a standing ovation, but I have to wonder, what would she have said? What other brilliant nuggets of information and life experience would have come out of that woman's mouth had we not done that? But at the same time, I was really there for it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was just a really powerful moment. Yeah. How was it directing that symposium? Was it? Oh, it was just incredible. I mean, I we were, you know, it was just kind of a pipe dream. We were like, let's just see if all of these amazing women in our field would be willing to talk to, you know, to put together a paper for this presentation. And so we put together this like wish list of people exactly. to get in touch with. And it was pretty incredible to, you know, we were like basically cold calling people. I've ne- I haven't <laughs> met a lot of these women before either. And so yeah. it was like, hey. I know you don't know me, but uh, we think this is super important. Do you think you would be willing to do it? And it was really interesting. You know, people at first were like, well, you know, actually, I wasn't planning to go to GBAC, or I've actually already committed to giving other talks or whatever. But then, you know, a couple days later, they'd write back and be like, actually, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm in. I'm going to give a talk, definitely. I think that's such a strong testimony to how important the role of women is, particularly in a Great Basin archaeology, too. The fact that so many um, female scholars within the presentation chose to explain that in their presentation, even saying, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't planning on going to GVAX this year, but this was too important to miss. And I think that's really great. Yeah. There's just too many old white men. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yes. But also, <laughs> I think part of, that, part of that symposium, one of the things that I got out of it is that there are allies. And there oh, are yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the one thing that I noticed. I don't know if we've mentioned yet that there's two symposiums in honor of two old white guys who are both fantastic guys. I've had the chance to work with both of them. And so I attended both of those symposiums and the one in honor of Dennis Jenkins and one in honor of Scott Thomas and the funny thing is most of the people giving presentations on new research building on that there's a lot of women yes. yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely two of the people <laughs> yeah. who organized those yeah. right here yeah, yeah. and I, I just really like the fact that we can take these careers of people that might stereotypically not look like they're supportive and they're building research for all of us and there's just so many women in it and working in it and it's, it's just really nice to see because you know five years ago I never noticed you yeah. felt alone and yeah and I think that's now. the goal is to build not only on like okay here are people that are doing undergrad and graduate research but also moving beyond that to like here are women who have careers in archaeology who are able to mentor the next generation mm-hmm. um because I think that that's something that's really important. Yeah. I, I know that, at least in my graduate career, we've had a lot of discussions about 
the amount of women that are in graduate programs mm-hmm. in archaeology and anthropology throughout the years. And I mean, it's not like it's a new thing that women are in anthropology and archaeology. Um, but I think the goal is not having them be in those graduate programs. It's having them be successful beyond those graduate mm-hmm. programs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think at least from this conference, that's something that like I take heart in is just seeing those people and seeing that it is possible. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. a direct path, but there's a way to, to be successful and to mm-hmm. keep working. Yeah. Yes, that reminds me of Shannon Tushingham's paper, Gender, Occupation, and the Costs and Benefits of Publication Strategies in Great Basin Archaeology. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful of a title, but it's, it was such a great presentation. Um, and it, it played off um, a lot of Lynn Goldstein's, as she had published a paper uh, with a team on publication through SAA over the years and grant applications, I believe. Um, It's been a little while since I've read it, but it touched on a lot of the same topics of there's a lot of PhDs who are women coming out, a lot of professors, but they don't always apply or submit like peer review articles. And it's just because it's a very difficult, time-consuming process. And other studies have shown that generally in academics, and is also true in archaeology, that women tend to shoulder more of the service roles mm-hmm. in uh, professorships. So things like being on like committees and doing more mentoring, they do more um, outreach and public service. So that was also touched on in the study where she mentioned that the non-peer review publications were actually higher especially in non-academic roles, um, but also in academic roles among women. Um, And that's just because it's easier. You still are making an impact, and in some cases more of an impact, depending on the publication, and depending on how you're measuring impact. But that doesn't always align with academic careers. With peer review, you know, it's pretty much if you're not in academia, there's little impetus to to do that. Um, I don't know if anyone else saw that or had any other thoughts. Yeah, I thought that was one of the best talks of the symposium because it really highlights the fact that even though we have gender parity in the amount of women that are applying to programs, the amount of women that are making it through the programs, they don't have gender parity in the way that our voices are represented. Mm -hmm. And there is real bias in the peer review process and it negatively impacts, you know, female scholars. And that's even though the trends are positive, and even though I think things are improving, um, it's super discouraging to see yeah. how far below parity we are when it comes to publications in, you know, high level, high tier, what's the word I'm looking for, really visible publications. Yeah. Um, you don't see women producing there like men do. And, and so I thought that was a really impactful talk. Yeah, definitely. And especially the the tenure track point. Like, mm-hmm. there are so few women in comparison to men. It was, it's kind of crazy and a lot of that just has to do with the the way that the system is set up um I was involved a a few years ago um at my uh one of my institutions on looking at women's experiences in academia and a lot of it is is that when you are um typically in line for being reviewed for tenure that is childbearing, the end of childbearing age, or like right at the height of when people tend to have kids. So it's hard to be competitive when you have other life things that theoretically you may or may not want to do. 
Um, but there are other priorities that we tend to have to shoulder, and that gets into like second shift situation, um, where you know women tend to shoulder a lot of the home responsibilities as well as their work stuff. Um, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other <laughs> <laughs> conversation. Yeah. Can of worms. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just in my experience, the program that I applied to is, is fairly small, and the cohorts above me were predominantly male, and my cohort um, is four guys and three guys, and then my cohort is eight women. And then the cohort below us, our first years, is one guy and six women. And so it was a massive, sudden shift towards a predominantly female-oriented department, mm-hmm. which was really cool, and it brought a lot we were bringing in a lot more professors, and my committee is mostly female. Mm. I only have one guy on my committee who's my thesis advisor. And it was just really nice to see that the field is changing. But when I think about all of the female uh, archaeologists I've seen before, I've seen a lot of them in support roles, like mm. you say. Mm. Like, people that are making CRM companies run but don't get a lot of the credit for it, or people that are making other people's research happen and mm-hmm. don't get a chance to publish themselves. And that just seems to be a really common theme of what I've seen before. And I'm really kind of hoping that like my generation is going to shift and that we're just going to keep populating the field and make it more evenly yeah. dispersed. So another point um, I wanted to bring up that we haven't touched on is GBAC. Um, this was brought up somewhere in the Women's Symposium that GBAC is sort of unique, and it's it's similar to a lot of regional conferences in that it is, what, a third to 40% of um, attendees are um, CRM professionals. Like, yeah. it's not, you know, SEAs is predominantly, um, if not almost all, academics. Um, and so there's a very high student attendance and uh, within the CRM. So it's kind of cool because you get not just role models in professors, uh, but also the CRM profession and people sort of making the rubber hit the road. Um, And that's also nice to see for those of us that may have been um, previously discouraged by academia, kind of want to make a transition and not stay in it necessarily for now. You know, there's other options out there and there are women who make it happen. So... Um, and others. I mean, it's not just women. But <laughs> that was one of our goals when we set up that symposium. We really tried to contact people that worked in all sorts of different realms of archaeology. So it's really important mm-hmm. to include people who are doing CRM, to include people like Linda Scott Cummings, who's running her own research lab, mm-hmm. to include people kind of across the spectrum. Reba Rausch, who's doing something that's kind of outside of typical academia, but still archaeologically related. So that was one of the things that we thought was pretty important was just to highlight that you know, this is not the only path that you have to take, and there are lots of women who are successful doing archaeology in all of these different ways and all these different places, and so that was one of our goals, was to try to make it a diverse symposium in that way. Yeah, the um, the ones that were really fun, um, I really liked Joan Coltrane's mm-hmm. um, yeah. reflection on the accidental archaeologist yeah. and just kind of taking opportunities that pop up, um, and I think that's um, an important one is like showing up is half the battle, or I like to think mm-hmm. of more than half the battle. Absolutely. Um, so when things are presented, just kind of raise your hand, not knowing what you're getting into, and you end up in fun situations. Um, do you guys have any input on your experiences with similar sorts of things? 
I mean, okay, to be honest, I never thought I was going to be an archaeologist. It wasn't something that, like, I had planned. I don't know. It's funny because I meet so many, and I don't want to say they're all men because they're not, but I feel like, especially at, like, a GVAC or a regional conference, you meet so many people who are like, okay, when I was 11 years old and 23 days, I found an arrowhead, and I, I was going to be an archaeologist, and... For me, that, I mean, that wasn't the case. And I think that one of the cool things about GVACs is that it is kind of, and I, I think this speaks to regional conferences in general, it is the kind of place where undergraduates and maybe young graduate students get to present research. And at least for me, like the first conference I ever went to was the Northwest Anthropological Conference. And I presented a paper, and at the time, I don't think I had any idea really like <laughs> what presenting <laughs> presenting a conference paper met yeah, and I think same. that for that reason GVAX is really valuable because I think it gives young archaeologists women or men the opportunity to kind of understand like what the bigger community is and just the fact that like there are so many different things that you can do as an archaeologist that ultimately are groundbreaking and really help move the field forward and it may not be that your research is like a science paper but I mean, we are working in a science, and so any time that you can repeat a pattern or even identify a pattern, like when I saw your paper in the plenary session, um, oh, I was yeah. reminded one of our professors is um, very interested in studying geophytes, and it's it's something that like not a lot of the graduate students in our department do, but it is so valuable, and just mm -hmm. seeing those connections and being able to recognize that people are working on all these different problems, and you can be part of archaeology in a really important way even if it is presenting a paper at GVAX that makes some, mm -hmm. someone else think about a different way to look at a research problem is really important yeah. I think oh yeah well you know most of the things that like for my like undergraduate senior thesis a lot of what I'm citing is either doctoral dissertations which aren't quite presented um, as like the published paper sort of thing um, or you know a lot of uh, symposium presentations and conference presentations. So kind of focusing that like, you know, just because you didn't publish doesn't mean what you did wasn't super influential and mm -hmm. influential, sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, the stuff that I been, have been looking at wasn't totally published in the traditional sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the really cool things that came out of your plenary talk, actually, that I was excited to hear, because I'm like, I've been saying this for years, is the, like, feminine lithics. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, thank you. you. Plenary, and you're like, feminine lithics. I was like, yes. Cheering <laughs> in the back over here. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty fun. I mean, that's something as a lithicist that you always run into is like, oh shit, like I'm doing something that's men's work, but like you're not. And yeah. I think that that's something important that is important for women to recognize is one, you don't have to only study archaeology that necessarily is traditionally feminist. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And also that like inherently anything can become feminist depending on the angle that you're using to analyze mm -hmm. it. So. Yeah, that was one thing that I... Um, we had talked about one of our seminars at A&M was about um, engaging a, a feminist anthropological perspective, particularly in Paleo-Indian archaeology. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were talking about how with um, more prominent female scholars in Paleo-Indian archaeology, we were getting more of the feminine perspective, mm -hmm. meaning that we were starting to try to understand what the traditional um, 
female roles were in Paleo-Indian society. And I was sitting there thinking, no, like a feminist archaeology means a female scholar can study whatever she wants. You know, <laughs> She can study traditional male roles. She can study traditional female roles, whatever that means. Do yeah. we really know? Like, yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I really, really did appreciate your talk. I thought it was well, really cool. I mean, somebody was make, joking with me. They were like, oh, man, um, McGuire and Stevens are going to be so surprised that they're feminist archaeologists now. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like, oh, I didn't think you were going to take that paper and <laughs> say something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll be yeah. happy with that. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's like even with uh, fiber perishables, it's considered often a soft science. It is, mm. it is a women's studies sort of yeah. thing, but... Actually, ethnographically, netting and cordage for nets, which is the finer stuff, is actually created by men most in a lot of the mm-hmm. Great Basin. So I like to bring that up as like a, it's not just women. It's mm-hmm. not, you can't like pigeonhole any particular activity as men or right. women because it varies. And especially as we know in hunter-gatherer societies, it was more of a collaborative effort. It there wasn't always as hard of a divide as we like to impose on the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting, the different ways to become a patron from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. And welcome back. In this next segment, we're going to discuss some of what we may or may not be missing um, on Saturday. I know I did. And uh, what they're looking forward to. Um, I actually want to see if there's anything, because we're not done with the conference yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If there's anything anyone's looking forward to tomorrow or um, are sad they're going to miss. I know I'm flying out. Um, I have to leave here around um, like 11. So... um, you gotta look at the, the Bonneville. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the Bonneville. <laughs> yeah, the, the CSFA students all get really excited. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Truthfully, I, I still have to present tomorrow. So yes. what I'm looking forward to is presenting and then being done presenting. <laughs> <laughs> what time are you? I have to be there if it's early. Um. So the Bonneville Estates Symposium starts at 8, but I present at 10. Oh, oh you can totally yeah. make it. I'm going to do I think some genomic analyses of Flora and for you. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah I can send to be recorded. Plus, I can send you my PowerPoint if you want it. Yes, I have supplemental that in as fun. well. I was actually, I almost went into the ADNA, but then the whole what you do is a little more intimidating. Okay, I, think. It is. I will always talk to people about it, and I have like practiced hand gestures from my <laughs> days of I can explain PCR with my arms and be like. Oh, here's double stranded DNA. Here's a single stranded. Here's a primary extension. So oh, seriously, she looks no. like an airport employee. <laughs> yeah, totally. I wish the big podcast could see that. <laughs> like, if you want to talk about DNA, I will talk to you about it. I spent my entire undergrad doing curing biosynthesis and yeah. PCR. I think, okay, but okay. So this is yeah. going back to a conversation that we actually had earlier in the conference. Um, just we've talked a lot about the idea of new methods and different ways that people are analyzing um, information. And ADNA is one of those great examples of like, yeah. you know, people are kind of, 
I mean, for lack of a better word, jumping on the bandwagon for very good reason, because it's giving us so much new information that we didn't have before. And I know for a lot of us, there are multiple ADNA papers that have come out actually while we're at the conference yeah. and we've spent quite a lot of time trying to find those papers yeah. and it's been rather difficult. But um, besides that, I think one of the interesting things that we were talking about is just the fact that like that information is really integral, but also you can still be doing more traditional, for lack of a better word, um, analysis, and it has a really big impact. And I think it's maybe not always necessarily the type of analysis that you're doing, but maybe how you're framing your questions, Mm -hmm. um, maybe how you're incorporating different types of theory and what types of, um, for lack of a word, paradigms you're trying to kind of understand or upend or not upend, however it may be. Yeah, because um, data without interpretation is kind of useless. I mean, you yeah. have an Excel table, and unless you're, like, r- interpreting what all of the numbers are, like, mm-hmm. no one's going to care or understand what it is about. So yeah. that is an important thing that some people think when they're like, I don't include theory, or I'm not theoretical. I'm like, well, actually, you were talking about your data, yeah. and you have an angle that you're taking to your data to answer specific questions, which is a theoretical angle. Yeah, that's the thing. Anytime anybody says, like, oh, I, I'm not talking about theory, it's like, but everything that you are studying, it has some basis in theory, whether or not you are actively engaging with it. Mm-hmm. Because anything that we do in the field today is based on the work of thousands upon thousands of researchers back in our history. So it's like you are engaging with theory, it's just not always explicitly Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Which isn't to say that you shouldn't try to explicitly yeah, but, engage. Yeah. <laughs> but make it more explicit. Yeah, but make yes. it more explicit. Like, it is perfectly fine to say, like, I'm engaging with this theory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to do it anyway. You might as well be open and honest about it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Critically examine how that's affecting it. And that also helps future students mm-hmm. because in my application of theory, I have had, because theoretical angle in Great Basin is not explicit, generally speaking. So it's been hard to find people with a similar theoretical um, perspective to sort of include how people have done this before in the past. Like, you want to cite people who have taken similar, you know, theoretical thoughts um, to include them so you don't accidentally say you did this and, like, be like someone else in the back of the poster session or po- at the back of the, the room, like, that was, I did that 20 years ago. Um, it's like, well, it's not, I can't search it. Um, so that's, that's something that, that's neat. Um, so did you guys come up with anything for tomorrow that you're thinking of oh, attending? I saw you guys pounce on the, the, I, yeah, the yeah. And a lot of the paleoecology kind of approaches with that. Yeah, I'm kind of sad I can't go to some of the talks that are outside of the Bonneville Estates uh, Symposium mm-hmm. because they look super awesome and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I felt the same way when I was presenting. Yeah. I love that symposium for Dennis Jenkins in honor of. Um, it, there were some amazing things in there. Uh, it, there was a couple of fiber presentations uh, in another room that I missed, but I was like, yeah, I have to say, yeah, I saw you talking. I thought it was—I really enjoyed it. It was a really oh, wonderful thanks. talk. Yeah, so, thanks. Thank I'm really glad. Yeah. All the all the presenters just were so great. I enjoyed everyone's papers and mm-hmm. seeing people using all sorts of different methods and being inspired and going to different regions and stuff after yeah. the yeah. schools. It's just really cool uh-huh. to see. I really enjoyed. Um, is his name Schmidt? That was your, that was Oh, Grant supervisor. Snicker? Snicker, okay, because I keep on hearing different names Oh, he names is the for, greatest ever. Yeah, but I really <laughs> loved how he took um, 
kind of that coding approach in the interviews because yeah. we had just talked about that in one of my geography classes in human geography, which is basically anthropology with more rules. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was really cool to be like, okay, well, I heard about this thing and I thought I would never hear about it again, but I did. So that was kind of really interesting to hear that being applied in an archaeological sense. Yeah. So that was awesome. Yeah, and it was a nice little touch of like cultural anthropology being applied to yeah. how we work with this. And as a cultural undergrad my major, it's like, oh, this is really neat. Yeah. And the other cool thing about that symposium was normally when we're at GBACs and stuff like this, we're getting snapshots of research. So oftentimes mm-hmm. you don't really get like the context of things. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about a symposium in honor of somebody is people like to summarize a lot of where the research is. And like, you did that, Caitlin, where you go went through and it's like, this is everything we've done so far. Mm-hmm. And it's a really nice overview for people who might not have seen it before. And it really gives you like an idea of like the breadth of research that people are doing and just how much work has gone into it. Yeah. You don't really get that every yeah. single yeah, time. It's, yeah, it's interesting to see the background. Like, this is where we started. And these are all the years that were a little painstaking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had to go through some stuff. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it, it also but really it contributes hopeful thing because when you see the people like all throughout they don't all start with oh we have all this data and all this research because it's so easy to read yeah. the paper and be like oh my gosh I'm such a failure you have all this data and you have all this theory and you're like and you're oh so no great. There you're so like great <laughs> wait they struggle too it's okay that yeah. we are a hot mess sometimes because <laughs> everybody at some point is is that oh, hot yes. mess well, also, many people's stories so far in the symposium, in this room, and also in papers that I've seen, um, the point of taking advantage of opportunities and just going mm-hmm. into it and seeing mm-hmm. what's going to happen, and sometimes it works out that, wow, I'm going to become an archaeologist, or, you know, <laughs> like, this is a really cool project, and mm-hmm. I hope that we can continue to mentor people and tell them, like, you can do this. Yeah, you can go make a poster and present it at the conference. Mm-hmm. You can go get a paper. Yeah. Yeah. You can do it. You know, like you sometimes, sometimes just yeah. need someone to tell you like yeah. Yeah. you can do this. And just be like, you know, cuz like after field school Chantel was like, "Hey, you're going with me to go coring." And that was basically, you know, coring Dog Lake with her was the, you know, after field school the jump start to going into geography. Cuz then I kind of, you know, it was just, you know, get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And after that, now I'm you know, presenting a paper on, ge- like, paleogeomorphology in the Great Basin. And it's just kind of a crazy... Hey, you won thing. at presenting a paper. Yeah. <laughs> Great. She got some money. Let's yeah. just congratulate you on getting what, second place in the poster. Yeah, yeah. 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 thank you. Yeah, yeah. that's on that. that is, I will say, though, that's something that, like, when I have undergrad um, field school students that are kind of like, oh, my God, how did you get here? It's like, okay, well... I worked really hard, obviously. Yeah, it's so much hard work. But it's also like, and it's such a cliche, but it's like, you have to be kind of willing to maybe fail. And mm-hmm. I think that that was one mm-hmm. of the really interesting things about a lot of these symposiums, symposiums is recognizing that, you know, people don't go from zero to like, I published in science. And <laughs> yeah. that's okay. And yeah. I think, um, I mean, it's hard and it's really difficult, but I think recognizing that, like, it's okay to fail, mm-hmm. and not even fail, but, like, it's You'll okay to not it. get that grant. Mm-hmm. It's okay to maybe not publish something on your first try, but, like, mm-hmm. as long as you're continuing to move forward, that's really valuable. And I think that that's something that I really appreciate about GBACs in general. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I guess just conferences in general. Just yeah. Well, having the opportunity. Yeah. 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 Well, not even having the opportunity. It's recognizing that, like, you just have to take the opportunities that you yeah. get. And, like, it mm-hmm. might not be perfect, but, like, as long as you're trying to do something, that's going to help you. It's going to help other people understand what you're doing and what they could be doing differently. Yeah. And I don't know. I kind of wonder, like, I've always thought this about publicationists, and, like, clearly it's not like I'm a prolific publisher because I'm in grad school but um (laughs) it's just recognizing that like part of it is just putting your I mean part of it is like the politics of publishing but part Mm -hmm. of it is also just like I talk to a lot of women um grad students and men grad grad students and I just recognize it's something that I've just been thinking about it's just I know a lot of men who are like okay cool I have this idea it's like kind of half-baked I'm gonna go publish it it's gonna be great and like I've never felt like that I've never done that (laughs) and so part of me is like huh I wonder if part of that is part of the difference in publication is like I'm not willing to go there until I have something that's perfect and maybe Mm -hmm. part of that is on me and recognizing that like you can just try to publish those Mm -hmm. things that you're doing that like yeah maybe it's not perfect but Mm -hmm. yeah well and like so my experience with this my first GVAC was this last one two years ago and I was an undergrad and I got an opportunity to work on a little pottery project, and then Chantel was like, hey, I signed you up for GBAC, you're going to present it. <laughs> and I was a little undergrad, and I had all these half-baked assumptions, and all of them were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I presented at the conference, and I met my thesis advisor, and my thesis is on this now, and I'm actually getting the opportunity to publish this winter, and everything I thought about this originally was wrong. But taking all of these opportunities and just letting people push you into doing things and then doing a load of hard work will get you there. And sometimes the opportunity is thrust upon you. And sometimes you just have to say, I don't think any of this is perfect, but I might as well try. Mm -hmm. And then you get the opportunity and somebody shoves you face first into it. And sometimes that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not too long ago, I can't remember the name of the author, but there was a, a study done that talked about um, women versus men in um, job searches. And I think yeah. this holds with mm-hmm. publications is women tend to think that they have to have all of the requirements and all the boxes checked yeah, accurately. Yeah, well. I was just going to bring yeah. that up. Yeah. So um, that's exactly it. You're not alone, Jordan. <laughs> no, I know. Women tend to feel like they have to be perfectly qualified in order to go for something like it has to you have to have everything correct and perfect and some of that is a historical bias of we have always had to do better than the average in in some a lot of ways still do um sort of prove that we're worth it and prove that we can do it so that is common um and we need to kind of bust through that and just do (laughs) yeah just do it as as nike might say (laughs) Um, well, I think that covers a lot in pretty much most of, of the conference. So did anyone have any final words or last thoughts before we close this out? GVAC is the best. It's so yeah. much fun. It's my favorite conference. Definitely. It's, it's yeah. been an empowering couple of days, and I'm proud to have been here and at least participated by watching. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those conferences similar to the SAAs for me that I will plan on going even if I don't quite know how I'm going to do it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I sign up some an abstract for whatever I'm working on and uh, just kind of see how it goes. I will go one way or another. And I think conferences generally are that way. It's, it's always worth going. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Just, you know, even if you're presenting, you know, yeah. just, you know, like making the connections. Because my first GBAC, I wasn't presenting. I just kind of watched and saw how it was all done. Mm-hmm. And it was so cool. It's such a learning experience. Just seeing everybody's research because, you know, yeah. we don't always get to see stuff that's published. And we always don't get to see all these things. And you just go to a conference and everybody's just going to tell you about all about the research. And you get to see things that might not be published for another 10 years or something mm-hmm. or Ever. It's just so much great information. Yeah, Yeah. and it's it's nice when you're doing research to get outside of your narrow hole. We we tend to be so myopic with our research focus. It's really nice to take a step back and at least take, you know, in this case, a regional uh, focus, but with a much broader chronological scale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the benefits of this particular GVAX in general is just the idea that they're trying to recognize that Great Basin archaeology can be benefited by looking outside of the Great Basin. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, yeah. Sure. Just getting everybody else's eyes on your research, you know, people come up like, oh, that was so cool. Have you thought about this? Yeah. That's such a big thing of, like, getting someone's suggestion that's like, oh, have you thought about trying this thing or looking here? Yeah, because mm-hmm. collaboration really only makes your research stronger. Absolutely. Like, yeah. it, I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't want to collaborate or at least share your research with someone because... The worst thing can happen is someone says, oh, have you thought about this? And you think, oh, I didn't. And you have to do some more work. But it's like Mm -hmm. it just strengthens your research. It strengthens your results. Awesome. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us on this recap for the Women in Archaeology and uh, Great Basin Anthropological Conference 2018 in Salt Lake City. And thank you again. Well, thank you, Kirsten. Yeah. 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 Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Women Archies and on our website at womeninarchaeology.com. You can also email us any episode requests or topics that you would like to hear about. Or also you can contact us through our email, womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners.